Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets, and you're tuning into Signal or Noise, the podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by Australia's top macro minds to explain how you can make money from a top-down perspective. If you're confused by the data or a little lost in the headlines, this show is for you. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our show and the Livewire Markets and Market Index websites. And a reminder that everything you're about to hear is information only and not advice. So with that said, let's go. Hello, I'm Hans Lee and welcome to Signal or Noise for this episode coming to you from the city of Melbourne. This is also our annual fixed income show and it comes at a time when bonds are recovering from record losses and trying to prove their place as a portfolio diversifier once again. Let's bring in our special panel for this show. Charlie Jamison is the co-founder of Jamison Coote Bonds. Andrew Kenobi is the Franklin Templeton Director of Fixed Income in Australia. And sitting in our economist chair is Tim Tui, Head of Macro and Strategy at Yarra Capital Management. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Now, listen, 2023 was really touted as the year for a comeback for bond investors, right, after the massive losses of 2022. So let me ask you all this. How do you find it's playing out so far? And is it too late to consider diversifying into bonds as a retail investor? And Charlie, I might start that with you. Uh, it's playing out so far it's pretty in a pretty anemic fashion, to be fair. We've obviously had um, some additional rate hikes that probably weren't forecast at the start of this year, uh, but returns have been um, solid. If not, uh, we seem to be cycling around these current yield valuations in the longer end, uh, around about 4% in both uh, Australia and the United States. Uh, we are very close to, if not at, terminal rates uh, in Australia, uh, in some other jurisdictions. There may be one more which are, are very well expected in terms of rate hikes, but we are experiencing a lot of disinflation after we'd had pronounced inflation. So we certainly don't think it's too late. Uh, there is a lot of yield available. Uh, obviously, uh, in other asset classes, valuations have, have pushed forward again. So the relativities between bonds and, say, equities uh, are looking very compelling. And uh, they do have a, an important role to play if we are to have a slower economy as a result of tighter, restrictive macro uh, monetary policy. Yep, absolutely. Tim, do you share that view? Yeah, I certainly did going into um, going into the end of last year and uh, and the early part of this year, and I still think it's a reasonable position to hold. Um, the tail of the tape has been that it's been disappointing. Um, you know, twenty percent returns calendar year to date for global equities versus around two for Aussie fixed income um, is probably not where you wanted to be um, um, positioning into the year. But having said that, um, I think Charlie's right. I mean, we've got a situation where inflation is clearly coming in below people's expectations, something we were looking for. The growth trajectory still looks pretty poor. And ultimately, we've got a scenario where equities feel like they've detached themselves somewhat, particularly global equities, from the real economy. So there is, I think it's still reasonable to hold the proposition. But if we're escaping hard landing scenarios, mm. then to some degree, you probably get a little bit less um, convicted than what you may have been if you were holding to a hard landing scenario. And that's still the, the great if, of course, that even we don't know the, the answer to. Andrew, what do you think about what's happened so far? Yeah, it's been an interesting year. It's certainly felt like two steps forward, one to one and a half back. So we've had you know, some, some positive steps in terms of returns for the bond market. Um, you know, we are cycling through this, this period of, of peak policy tightness. Um, many had thought we might be sort of through that already, but we're not you know, arguably quite there, but certainly very close. And I think as well, the context of 2022 being, you know, depending on which index you look at, 
almost the worst year in bond market history for you know, around 50 years. So with that in the back of people's minds, I, I understand that there has been you know, a hunger for strong returns coming into 2023. But I think as we look forward, you do have somewhat of a trifecta of uh, some tailwinds for the asset class insofar as you know, inflation is slowing, growth is slowing, uh, and yields are already very high. And so that's, you know, that's a good setup, I think, going forward. Yep, okay. Well, one of the reasons that bonds have been closely eyed as an asset class, especially over the last few months, is because of the interest rate cycle. I mean, all of you have referenced that, right? And bond prices do tend to do better as soon as a rate hiking cycle ends. Now, at its February meeting this year, the RBA had this to say about future rate hikes. Quote, the board expects that further increases in interest rates will be needed over the months ahead to ensure that inflation returns to target and that this period of high inflation is only temporary. So you can look at that and we now consider that against what the RBA actually said at its most recent monetary policy decision. And this was of course August. Interest rates have increased by four percentage points since May last year. In light of this and the uncertainty surrounding the economic outlook, the board again decided to hold interest rates steady this month and that of course follows last month's pause. So let me ask you all gentlemen, and Tim, I'm going to start with you. Is the shift in language that we're seeing a definitive signal that this month's pause is going to last and it's actually going to stick? Or is there noise because they need to be data dependent? Signal or noise, Tim? I think it's signal. I think the RBA is largely done, absent a surprise that comes through in the intervening period. So it would have to be materially stronger economic data, uh, a, supply, a surprise in the inflation data locally. But I think the reality is that they've moved to focus more on the downsides to growth. And when you move your inflation forecast to being in the middle of the target within the forecast horizon, that's typically a signal that um, they're also very close to the top of the top of the top of where they were targeting. And just a quick follow-up to that: the forecast horizon of the RBA, just for our audience out there, how long is the forecast horizon for them generally? Well, we now have 2025 numbers, so you're normally thinking that they. It's, it's really that two-year-forward sort of view um, that, is, that matters most. Um, you know, if growth is moving around on a, on a, on a uh, six-month or nine-month basis, it's typically not really what they're, um, what they're calibrating policy around. They're trying to calibrate to that 18-month to two-year time frame. Yeah, all right. Andrew, do you share that view or do you think it's more noise? I'm going to say noise. Um, I mean, I share um, Tim's, Tim's views in many respects because, you know, we also think um, that they're probably likely done. Um, the reason I say noise is they still are notionally maintaining a, a tightening bias. So they still are suggesting that there is scope for, for policy to move higher still. Um, but we would sort of look at um, both the communication and the likely path of events over the coming months and, and suggest that the hurdle for them to act on that bias is getting higher. Uh, the incoming data and evidence, particularly around the consumer and the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, which are responding to 400 basis points of hikes, as you'd expect, uh, will start to confirm that you know, that hefty and, and somewhat aggressive monetary policy path is, is starting to do its work. So you know, our view is as the months go on, then the, the window to kind of, if you like, validate moving further will, will narrow. Um, but you know, I think as the RBA themselves have found, and many it has been very difficult to call that definitive mm -hmm. endpoint, and that's that's the reason I would say noise. Yeah, and I'm happy to remind everybody that monetary policy generally has a 12 to 18 month time lag. Charlie, where do you fall on the signal or noise? Signal. Yeah, uh, and for the reasons that have been well articulated, I think um, the long and variable lag is is now running through the economy at a much faster rate. Uh, we've already started to see, you know, consumer uh, data tick tick down. 
look, let's be honest, all central bankers have kind of cancelled forward guidance and, and started a, a period of strategic ambiguity, really. You know, the US Federal Reserve, the ECB, we might hike, we might cut, we might do nothing. I think that the, the RBA will be in a do-nothing camp. The door was wide open for them to go in August if they wanted to, and they didn't walk through it. Uh, now we'd probably wait for the third quarter inflation data, which would be uh, November would be the, the next available uh, window, which would make sense to us. And by then, we think the domestic economy will have slowed further and, and uh, additional restrictive policy will be off the table. We'll be talking about rate cuts into 24. So topic two concerns how investors have been responding to the renewed opportunity in bonds, as we've all been talking about just now. Now, some data that's out from the global funds network, Callistone, has found that the second quarter of 2023 was the biggest in terms of outflows in the five years since the data series was started. And the outflows were right across the spectrum from equities to property to multi-asset funds. But there is one asset class that bucked the trend, and I think you can guess what I'm talking about. It's, of course, bond funds. It received actually more than half a billion dollars in inflows during those three months. And Vanguard was also out recently with first half flows data Fixed income ETFs there at that company receiving around $2.5 billion in inflows in the first half alone. So let me ask you all, gentlemen, and Andrew, I'm going to start with you for this round. Is this a signal that we've hit the peak or is it noise because there's more inflows to come? Signal or noise? Oh, I'm going to say noise. I think it's important information in sort of understanding the direction of, of, of retail money flows uh, across asset classes. Um, of course, fund flow statistics only pick up part of the picture, so there's there's there's, there's institutional money, there's other sources of, of flows into an asset class that are you know, equally important that aren't necessarily picked up by that. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's constructive that we are seeing you know, more interest from the retail sector into fixed income. But you know, there's, there's a lot of other cross-currents there as well to consider. Okay. And what, are, what other factors are you maybe referring to? Then? Well, just you know, things that we are looking at in terms of you know, our, own, our own client base, but other... Um, observations around institutional money flows as well and, and asset allocation decisions at that larger level. Okay, understood. Charlie, signal or noise? Uh, I think it's noise. I think the fund flows will continue. Um, clearly, the uh, re-establishment of yield is, is very, very healthy. For an asset class that was at low yields before COVID and then COVID completed that cycle, absolutely. Uh, so whereas uh, we have an, an ageing demographic, particularly in parts of the super system, uh, that does attract capital. Of course, the one asset class that's been doing very well is cash. Cash is highly in investable again for now, uh, but certainly it doesn't maybe counterweight a portfolio in the same way. It does provide uh, optionality, but not always liquidity, depending on how long you need to lock up for. So I think there is a lot of interest in fixed income because you can get that outsized return if something does go wrong. Generally, as we hit terminal rates, as we're broadly doing across the world, that's the time to get invested in and around there. Mm. Um, and we're, we're broadly there or thereabouts. Uh, it has had a huge reset and I think uh, investors are uh, you know, taking advantage of those opportunities, having been underweight uh, and they're starting to build up those allocations again. Nothing says renewed normal like a 5% term deposit rate that you can now get. Tim, what do you say, signal or noise? And, and maybe as well what, what the, you know, the team at Yarra Capital Management are finding. Yeah, so I think it's noise. I mean, there's a real identification problem when looking at flows and then what they actually mean in terms of transacting through to, to, to yields. And that's true across all asset classes. What are we seeing? Well, we're seeing a lot of demand in, actually in more in the credit space. So we've seen, um, because credit is essentially, you know, the combination of where high bond yields and the spread on top. So, you know, running yields in those sort of portfolios are 
six and a half percent plus, uh, which is I think a pretty attractive starting point. And if we do happen to escape a hard landing, then you are sort of mitigating to some degree the risk that the spreads can spike on you and, and avoid some of that capital loss. So there's been a lot more demand in that space for us, but um, there's a lot of inquiry into the sovereign bond um, funds that we run as well, actually, I must say, and institutional inquiry this time. So for the first time in a long time, institutional guys are, are actually uh, taking the meetings and, uh, and, and wanting to uh, at least kicking the tyres. Yeah, well, maybe a case of grab it while you can. <laughs> Well, topic three is really going to flow on from where we just left off. And as you have all heard from the panel, Australian investors do agree that an allocation to bonds is finally being a prudent move after a long time of being in the wilderness. But do people actually know what they're getting into? Well, Natixis recently asked investors from all around the world to complete a general finance knowledge test. And in the quiz, there was a question on bonds and what a rising rate environment actually does to their value which by the way, the correct answer is the present value goes down and the future income potential goes up. Now, of the 8,500 people that filled out that survey, only 2% got the question right. It was 1% in Australia, and of the people from Australia who completed that quiz, 64% of them said, I don't know, which put us dead last among 21 countries. So, is this an important signal that we need to start explaining the value of bonds better to Australian investors? Charlie, signal or noise? Signal. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done in this space. Uh, a lot of folks haven't naturally had an allocation to fixed income. Obviously, the lower yields that uh, preceded the COVID experience didn't draw them into the product. Uh, but it is a very uh, developed product in, in other jurisdictions. It does get a much larger asset allocation for whatever reason. There are good reasons why that hasn't occurred over time in Australia. We, prior to the GFC, had a very small bond market, so its growth has really uh, been really in the last decade. Um, but yeah, I do think we, we've got more work to do, and we certainly try to do that on behalf of the fixed income community to take the message uh, to uh, to the you know, the retail uh, folks and and uh, you know and explain the virtues, I guess, of, of this asset class. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, would you share that view? Um, I'm going to say I'm going to say noise okay. only because I understand exactly what Charlie's coming from. But you don't have to understand how the sausage is made to enjoy having a sausage on a barbecue on a Saturday afternoon. Right. right? So, and as part of a let's say a healthy diversified portfolio, um, that can be thoroughly enjoyed. So I mean the, the point is that you know it's up really to the experts to know all the technicalities about bonds. They the investor just needs to know that it should be my portfolio to perform a role um, and, 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 and allow the professionals and the consultants um, to um, decide the appropriate amounts. Okay, well that's an interesting take. Andrew, which way do you fall on this? Uh, so I'll go signal. Um, I think mainly because I agree with the comments from, from Charlie and Tim. Um, I would pick up on the idea that you know it is an important task that we have to just continually try and lift the level of education in the community. So um, you know, let's take that on board. But I would also make the point that, you know, in my observation, uh, the level of sophistication and understanding in the community in Australia, particularly amongst the advisor network, has continued to grow and is actually quite impressive. So there's a lot of understanding in the marketplace now about fixed income. And we just continue to work with, you know, partners in that area to try and get that message to, to end investors as well. Um, and the other point I would make in the Australian context is there is a lot of usage of the terms or borrowing of terms from fixed income for a lot of investment products. So they will take fixed, they will take income, they will take different terms and then apply them to a 
product, which you know, could be a, an a liquid debt product of some form, for example. And so I think that does create a bit of confusion as well. So when investors consider what are my expectations for the returns, for the volatility, um, you know, they see fixed, they see income, then they see fixed income and they, they kind of mishmash it together. So we have to sort of work harder to truly just explain this, this very developed, very liquid asset class and how it works. Yeah. Charlie, can I draw on what you were saying there about the fact that we've had a very nascent bond market in Australia? It's really only come to life really in the last 10 years. In other countries around the world, like I think in the US and the UK, certainly I've, I've got a friend in Singapore who's told me that you can buy partials of a bond for, for very small amounts, comparatively small amounts. How do you then, as, as the members of the panel, how do you think we can explain bonds in a more simple and applicable way to the average investor? Maybe what are you all doing in, in that field? Look, we just try and highlight, I guess, the, you know, the role that they play. I think Tim touched on that. If you think about a football team, not everybody plays at full forward. Some, mm. there, are, there are folks that need to play in the, in the back line and, and be uh, that defensive anchor. Uh, that doesn't, they don't win too many Brownlow medals uh, down here in Melbourne, funnily enough, but uh, they play a very important role. If you want silverware on the, uh, on the mantle come the end of the season, that's uh, something you have to include in your team. So I think we've got to just try and explain that to folks. Clearly, uh, there has been more interest in direct investment uh, or, or you know, the co-mingled funds that we are all involved in. Uh, and I think that interest will only grow. These income levels that are available uh, and the portfolio benefit that is available uh, is pretty impressive. It's the highest we've had uh, in, the, in the, the last decade really here. Um, and it, it, it's something that will draw folks in. And I think people want to understand fundamentally what they're buying. I appreciate sausages are pretty tasty, Tim, but uh, it's good to know, you know, their origin and, and what's inside every now and again. A lot of people care about that too. In case you didn't know we're in Melbourne, there's your AFL reference and the sausage reference. Um, Tim, what, what, what would you say that? I mean, obviously in your role as a chief economist, you look after all sorts of different funds across all sorts of different asset classes, but is there a way that you think we can explain bonds, fixed income generally in, the, in that more simple way? Oh, I think so. I think people just need to understand, you know, what assets are the safety assets and what assets are your growth assets and why you need a balance. And, you know, the messages just need to be very, very vanilla and very, very simple. Um, I think, you know, an economist like me are probably guilty of this more than anybody else. We might overcomplicate messages at times. Uh, there's a tendency to, for portfolio managers to want to sound smart as well. Whereas the end user just needs to know what's the purpose and why do I need it. Yeah. So the message just needs to be clear. Yeah, all right. Andrew, would you share that view? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think, I think just continuing to, to break it down and um, you know, make it simple and straightforward. I mean, essentially, we're, we're managing an asset class, which is effectively making loans to entities, you know, government and corporate primarily, but, but others as well. And, and those loans, you know, earn an income stream primarily, but the value of those loans will move around with the prevailing level of, of market interest rates. So, you know, just make those messages simple. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everybody. It is now time for our Charts to Watch segment. And just because we're in Melbourne, we're not going to change how we do things. Each guest has brought along one chart. We asked them to tell us about it and why they think it's a chart that you should be paying more attention to. Charlie, let's take a look at your chart maybe to start with. You brought along inflation surprises. And I think in particular, you want us to look at a trend that's been developing. So tell us what this says to you as an investor. Yeah, look, obviously, the, the surprise higher in, in inflation really caught everybody, uh, you know, off guard to some degree, particularly with the velocity and, you know, to get to 9% inflation in the United States. That has rolled and, and our last year on your reading is down at three. It's important from an Australian context because we did lag that global inflation move by 
a considerable amount, more than six months. And so it is our expectation that we're still in that disinflationary period. A lot of these inflation numbers have been coming in to the downside surprise now after surprising to the upside. So they've just had huge amounts of amplitude and they are settling down towards trend. Now, trend might not be back in the 2 to 3 to uh, area that central banks would desperately like to collar it into. It could be a little higher, but we're not going back to 9, barring some huge exogenous shock, um, you know, problem in the South China Sea, that type of thing. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, by and large, the inflation fight is complete, notwithstanding there'll be some little aftershocks, um, be that in commodity or energy markets, uh, but there are still some very disinflationary forces that are working through. So that's important to recognise that central banks have, have, you know, embarked on the fastest and largest tightening cycle in a gen you know, more than a generation to quell and, and slain this inflation monster, and they've pretty much done it now, and, and it should just uh, continue to moderate. And I guess this goes back to what you were saying around, you know, why the RBA is very near, if not already, at terminal rate, right? I know they don't want to make a second big mistake, but there is also such a thing as too much, sure. isn't it? Yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. Tim, I love the fact that in the last uh, topic you were briefly talking about, you know, potentially overcomplicating things. Your chart is a an interesting chart, but I, I think it's 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 a it's a complex chart, but it's an interesting chart. This is unit labor cost growth, but we're talking about this from the implications of, of productivity, right, and economic activity. So walk us through this chart and tell us what you think it says. Okay. To so. The point of the chart is twofold. One is that whenever you're raising rates to slow an economy, by default and by design, um, productivity cyclically deteriorates. If you start raising interest rates on the basis of falling productivity, you're in a doom loop. That's a very silly way to go about running policy. And I actually was quite interested in the way that they tried to think about it in those terms. And the second point is, why, why is productivity there anyway? Well, because the recovery in the economy has been in the services sector, and the services sector we don't measure productivity very well at all. It's essentially economic growth is measured on hours worked and so is, and productivity is almost non-existent. So it's a measurement issue and I think the central bank should have been on top of that. The last point I'd make on it though, you can see I've put some arrows on that chart to the downside. Australia's got this really interesting and very predictable feature that um, we call it basically economic growth plus the change in the terms of trade is something we call gross domestic income. It's incredibly predictable once you know where commodity prices are going. But it also means there's a very high, incredibly high correlation between average labour costs and that, and, that, and that particular variable. So my point is that if you plug in the RBA's own forecast for economic growth and what they have in there for the terms of trade, average labour costs go to zero over the next um, nine to 12 months. So on their own forecasts even, mm. they can, they, there's no possible case they could be making for a higher terminal rate over and above what they were guiding to earlier on in the year. So complicated chart, complicated answer, but incredibly important for the way that the RBA actually calibrates policy because they use that unilateral cost um, feature in modelling inflation um, significantly, lean on it aggressively. And on behalf of all the viewers and listeners, thank you very much for explaining that. It's a really good chart. I really appreciate you bringing it along. Andrew, we're going to talk about the income part of fixed income for, for your chart. And we're talking dividend yields, which everybody loves, versus investment grade bond yields, which are, of course, government bonds. So walk us through this chart and, and tell us why it matters to you. Yeah, so we've talked on this theme um, over the course of the panel, this idea that yields are, uh, you know, once again, quite attractive and income from the asset classes is all of a sudden you know, in a good place. And, and what I like about this chart is uh, for many years, certainly before the pandemic, within the Australian context, there has been a structural underweight to bonds in general. 
and, and certainly a, a favour you know, amongst many investors towards equities because of its income characteristics, because dividends in Australia tend to be a, you know, generally quite high. Dividend yields in Australia tend to be quite appealing, particularly amongst that blue chip cohort. And so understandably, if you wanted income as an investor, you had to be in equities or overweight. And by contrast, bonds were, were less appealing. And all of a sudden, bonds are actually you know, back in the game in that sense. And so what this chart shows is the average yield to maturity for just the, the blue chip corporate bond index, if you will. Um, so you know, in this case, it, it consists of you know, very, very high quality companies, but also some government related issuers as well. And the idea is you can effectively be higher in the capital structure, you know, taking less risk, but getting higher income than, than equities for, for the first time in many years. I think you will all agree this has been a masterclass in fixed income. So thank you for joining us. That's it for Signal on Always Melbourne, the first time we've done the show from here. And a big thank you to the panel, to Charlie Jamison of Jamison Coupons. Thank you very much. Tim Tui of Yarra Capital Management. Thank you very much. Andrew Kenobi of Franklin Templeton. Thank you as well. If you've enjoyed the program, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and to the Livewire and Market Index websites. We are back in Sydney next time with the first all educational edition of the show. It's called Back to Basics. And we hope to see you then. <laughs>